your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, turning over a new leaf, so to speak, uh, in our year-long study of this great letter. Uh, we, started, we started Hebrews back at the, I think it was the very first weekend of this year, back in January, and it's carried us through so far, and it's going to carry us to the end of the year. And what we've been, where we've been camped out lately, after spending most of the letter celebrating Jesus and what he's done for us and how he offers us something that no one else can offer us, what we've been looking at lately in the last month or so is what it would look like for us to live as if Jesus is who Jesus claims to be. What we've been looking at is the life of faith, what it's shaped like, who helps us to see it. We've been digging into illustrations from Israel's past of people who live like the promises were true and therefore lived lives of radical devotion to to God. And we've looked last week at the fact that, that sometimes, sometimes, if you choose to live that way, it's gonna cost you your life. We looked at this radical distinction between some whose faith brought back even their own dead children. Faith that, that stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire. Faith that saw women receive their children back from the dead and then saw the next, in the very next sentence that sometimes faith leads to torture, leads to being sawn in two or killed by the sword. It's the same faith that could lead in either direction. What we saw last week, what we're going to see today, is that Hebrews is is certainly far from a sort of rosy picture of what the Christian life will look like. You know, there there have always been voices in Christianity that promise you, if you believe these promises, you make them your own, if you have enough faith, then your life is going to be easy. You're going to get what you want from God. Hebrews knows nothing of this kind of faith, though. Hebrews, from the beginning all the way through to the end, is filled with calls to endure, to hold on, to survive through pain and suffering. It's, it's written to a, a group of people who had already seen their property plundered and their friends thrown in prison and who were under the threat of actually losing their lives for the gospel. And it's written for us, who may not face those same threats of persecution, but who know what it is to be disappointed, to lose loved ones, to lose jobs, to lose friends. Those who know what it is to have sin that we just can't seem to shake, that keeps a hold on us and keeps pulling us down. Hebrews, in other words, is a deeply, profoundly realistic book. It promises not that your life will be free from pain, but that there's a joy in the gospel that can cut through pain, that can transcend pain, that can grow stronger even because of pain. And that's the message that's at the heart of our text this morning. We're in chapter 12 now. We've moved from this list of faith's heroes from Israel's past into a much more direct call to these people he's writing to, to own that faith as their own. And this text gives us a realistic assessment of what that will look like. It means thinking about the pain in our life in a very particular way. Now, I'm choosing to use the word pain to describe pretty much anything in our life that's hard, a really generic description There's lots of other words. Other ones come up in Hebrews, words like suffering or affliction or hardship. Those just seem either too narrow or too churchy to me to get to the full impact of what this passage is about. The passage is about what it would look like to hold on to faith, to endure even through the hard things in your life, whether they be something severe like 
an, an illness that could claim your life or a job loss that throws all of your plans into question or whether it just be something like sort of day-to-day hardships that we go through, like the fact that our child is not sleeping right now and so I'm really tired, something, something like that, something, something that's hard and not to be minimized but not on the level of, you know, you could be killed for your faith. I think the passage this morning spans that whole, that whole gamut of, of pain in our lives and calls us to see it in a very particular way. That's our goal this morning. How will we look at our pain and endure through it if we're looking at pain through the lens of faith? That's what we're looking at. The image at the center of this text, which we're going to read together here in a minute, is a race and a call to run it well by holding on even when you've sweated out all your resources and your calves are all knotted up and you've rolled over your ankle and somebody's put a pothole in the middle of a track or a road is closed. To run a race that's hard and that's full of things that could keep you out of the race. Our passage is meant to give us two more reasons to hold on, to endure even through pain. That's where we're going this morning. If you, if you have a worship guide uh, and, and haven't seen it yet, the outline or the two reasons we're going to be looking at are there for you, printed there for you. Now, if you found the passage, Hebrews chapter 12, would you please stand with me? In honor of God's word, as we read it together, this is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The first reason our text gives us for holding on, for enduring, even through the pain that all of our lives include, is this. Endure pain because the prize is worth it. I think in these first two verses of chapter 12, the kind of pain that he's really emphasizing, the kind of, the kind of struggle that you're going to have to hold on through, is really more directly related to when your faith costs you something. You know, I said at the beginning, I think the, the whole text spans all the kinds of pain and hardships that are in our life. But here in these two verses, I think he's really thinking about when your faith costs you something. 
when, for example, the fact that you identify with Jesus may lead to you being persecuted, or when the fact that you identify with Jesus and claim him as your Lord means you've got to stop doing something or give something up in your life that isn't consistent with his lordship. Both of those things are pain. Things done to you or things that you've got to give up if you're really going to trust in Jesus. Those are the two kinds of things I think this, that these verses have in mind. And the image is, is clear, isn't it? It's that of a race to keep on running, the, the sort of marathon, not a sprint. And to do that, shedding all the things that might hold us back or, or trip us up. It means self-denial, and self-denial always hurts. So the question that his readers are probably asking, the one that we should be asking, is why go through with it? If this is what it means to commit to Jesus, if it could cost me my life at the hands of people who don't like Jesus, or if it could cost me the things that I love about my life, which aren't consistent with what Jesus calls me to, then why should I commit to him? This call to run, which is at the heart of these two verses, the call to run with endurance, is supported by two examples. One before the call, one after the call, both making exactly the same point. Both examples are meant to show us that the prize waiting for us if we keep on running, even when it's painful, is worth the pain that we've got to experience along the way. Along the way, excuse me. The prize is worth it. And the, that's told to us, verse 1 says, by these witnesses that chapter 11 is all about and by Jesus, who is our ultimate example of one who endured incredible suffering that none of us can ever imagine because he believed that the prize was worth it. So I want us to spend just a minute on each of these two examples. Verse 1 starts it out with, since we are surrounded by these witnesses, therefore run the race with endurance. And who he has in mind is clearly the, the guys that he's talked about in chapter 11. That laundry list of people from Israel's history that are, are powerful examples of what it looks like to put the promises of God at the heart of your life and to run with endurance. Because we have those witnesses to us, let's run. Now, if that's what he's getting at, then I, for one, have got to change how I've always read this passage. Some of you may be reading this or hearing this for the first time. Others of you have probably heard this verse. And I think I've always heard it as... Uh, because we're surrounded by these witnesses, let's run. Because these guys are watching us, you know, and they're cheering us on. And we've got to perform, right? I get the image of like an Olympic stadium and, and uh, a track and field meet with surrounded by adoring fans. And that probably tells you all you need to know about my narcissism. But I don't, I don't think that's the imagery here at all. What, what, we, what we often mean by witness and what this text means by witness is more like the witness at a trial, right? You call a witness at a trial to testify to something he saw to something he knew to be true. And that's what, we're, that's what these, these examples in chapter 11 have been about. Here are these heroes from Israel's history who are saying, you know what, I held on to the promises of God and it cost me these things and that was worth it because his promises are life in a way that these things never could be. They're, witnessing, they're witnesses for us. We're surrounded by them because these voices tell us to hold on that they know from experience it's worth it. It's the kind of witnessing that we do when we want somebody to try out a new restaurant. It's the kind of thing I, I have, a, I for a long time, frequented this great Indian restaurant uh, over off West End, and I was always telling people about it, but I had to, and then I heard through the grapevine that they had gotten a 46 on their health rating, which is really bad, uh, but I was still selling it, right? I would still be like, you, you, this place got a 46 on its health rating, but... The food is amazing. You've got to go try it. I was bearing witness to the fact that this cost or this risk is, is a worthy price to pay for good Indian food, right? Well, so you get a little bit of rat poop in your food. I mean, what? 
You're not even going to know. It's, it's the same kind of witness that we bear when we want to read a great book that's really long. So uh, I've just started Anna Karenina, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, recently with some friends. And, um, and Josh Scheib is the one who's been telling me about it for years. And it's a really, really long book. And he's told me before, bearing witness to it because he's read it, it's really long and it's going to take us forever, but it's worth it. You know, it's, it's an amazing book. It's worth your time. That's the kind of witness, I think, that these, these heroes in chapter 11 are bearing to us if we'll hear them. Yes, Moses says, it cost me the treasures of Egypt. It cost me all the pleasure that I'd enjoyed throughout my adult life. Yes, it meant sharing in the reproach of Christ, but it was worth it. It's the call that Abraham issues to us. Yes, it meant living for a promised land that I didn't possess in the middle of a land owned by people too powerful for me. Just a reminder that I couldn't get what God had promised me on my own. It meant living in a tent without laying a foundation. It meant living for a city that has foundations built by God himself even when I can't see it. Even when the cities of this world that I can see are so beautiful and offer so much treasure. Abraham says to us that it's worth it. It's the witness that's borne by those who endured and refused to recant even though they had to suffer persecution, torture even. Even though they were sawn in two or killed by the sword, they tell us it's worth it because in the words of Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. That's the testimony of these witnesses if we'll hear them this morning. Hang on, even when it hurts, even when it costs you, Because the prize is worth it. It's the same point made to us by the second witness. So we see, since we're surrounded by witnesses, keep on running with endurance. And run with endurance because or by looking to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated now in his his power and glory, having received his reward and its down payment sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. The author's making the same point. There's a cost of faith to living for promises that you can't see rather than living for the pleasures of sin that you can see. He points us to Jesus, calling us to look outside of our own pain at the cost to us and look at someone else who went through it and who came out of it, who reminds us that even the greatest suffering known to humankind is worth it for the joy that's set before us. I love the phrase that describes Jesus as despising the shame. It's kind of a, an odd phrase at first, but if you think about it, it makes sense. What he's, to despise something is to consider it not worthy, right? To consider it no big deal. It's not worth much. Jesus looked at the greatest shame in his known world, the most humiliating and painful way that anyone in his world had ever come up with to kill somebody. He looked at that and he said, he despised the shame. Because the joy on the other end of it was so great he could taste it. We're called to live like Jesus. Normally, normally Hebrews, when he's talking about Jesus' death, is talking about what that death does for us. That through his death, there's a sacrifice that's greater than our sin that washes us clean from all the things that we have done to offend a holy and righteous God. That's usually the way he talks about his death, but there's another layer that's beautiful. It's it's the layer that, that tells us that not only is Jesus one who has acted for us, but he's one who has provided us with a model for how we're to follow him. And that, and that his death is the greatest act of evil 
and suffering known in human history, but it was turned to a profoundly good end because of the one who called him to it. And therefore, we are to share, him, share in that, to follow him, to endure pain for the joy that's set before us, knowing that God can just as easily turn our pain to good as he has turned his son's pain to good. We're called to make the same calculation that Abraham made and that Moses made and that all those faithful witnesses have made. Ultimately, the, the same calculation that Jesus made. We're called to a life that's defined by the beauty and the glory and the joy of a country that's promised to us, not one defined by the very real but incomparable pain that we experience here. What's going to define you? Is it the hope for a country that's coming, that's promised to you by your Father, or the pain that you're experiencing now in this moment? This is a call to look out of our pain to someone who witnesses to us and promises it's worth it. Endure pain because the prize is worth it. That's, that's the first reason. The rest of the text is given to a second reason. Endure pain, we're told, because that pain is good for you. Because the pain is good for you. I think verses 3 through 11, but especially 5 through 11, hammer this point home to us. It's a different span of pain here. I mentioned before, I, I really think those first two verses are about pain that's caused to you because you identify with Jesus, either because people who don't like it and so they, they persecute you, or because claiming him means giving up something that you love, something that you want. Here, though, I think the span is much greater. I think it's all the kinds of pain that all of us are familiar with in our, in our lives, pain from broken relationships, pain from job loss and financial worry, pain from... You know, kids who are hard at home. Pain from losing loved ones, from the fear of death. It spans it all. And we're called to endure it because it's good for us. Now, I want to make something real clear before I get into the details here. I think the rest of the passage is given to showing why, this, why we should see our pain as, as good for us, as a, a loving discipline of our Father. But I want, to make, I want to make a couple really clear distinctions, if possible, before we get there. Because there's a way to read this text that, that's wrong, I think. I don't want you to mishear me. The question of why bad things happen to God's people is a terribly complicated question. I think there's a, there's a level or a layer to that question that is always going to be shrouded in mystery. That we just can't cut through. We won't know, for example why God let this or that very specific thing occur in this or that life. Why he calls some of his children to endure the death of a child or sexual abuse. Why some are killed randomly by drunk drivers. We don't have answers to why God lets that go. There is a layer that's always mysterious. And I am not talking about that layer today. Right? I realize that that, that, that could be a, a, a catching point for you in your in your consideration of Jesus and Christianity, if, if you're held back from committing to Christianity because you just can't see how a loving God would let, let suffering like we all have experienced and seen exist, then I want to have that conversation with you. Uh, I think there are some good resources that I'd love to put in your hands that you could read and, and help you think about this problem. I won't promise we can answer it. It's always mysterious, but there's some, you can get some traction. That's not what I want to do today, though. What I want to talk about today, what I think this text is getting at, is another layer to this problem of good, bad things happening to God's people. 
I think for all the mystery associated with, with what I'm calling layer one, you know, why God lets this thing happen specifically, there's another layer over here that, we, that is always true for God's children, always. No matter what the specific circumstances, it's always true, and that's what our text is concerned with. On this layer number two, what we know for a fact, according to this text, is that whatever it is, whatever it is, God is using this pain or hardship to train his children, to discipline his children, to purge his children so that they trust him better. No matter what it is, that is always in play. Again, let me make this distinction really clear. We are not here talking about discipline as the same thing as punishment. Sometimes it might be. We're sinning in a certain way that God knows is keeping us from the fullness of joy that he's called us to, and he may purge us through something painful to help us see our sin, a kind of punishment in this life. But, but it doesn't have to be that. Sometimes it's just God's wanting to show us some self-reliance in us that's got to be exposed. So he, he allows us to go through things like sickness, which we wouldn't say God is punishing you with sickness, or, or, uh, or any, fill in the blank, any number of things that happen to us that are unpleasant. We don't have to say that God took your job away because you did this or that. Level number one, layer number one, always mysterious. We don't know what God is doing. Layer number two, whatever it is from whatever source, the things about your life that are hard, you can, you can know this as a promise. God is not surprised by it. God gave this thing to you. And the reason he gave it to you is that he wants you to be holy. He gave it to you so that you would trust him better. I love this quote from John Piper on this same text. Piper says, God is not coming to his children late after the attack and saying, I can make this turn for good. That's not discipline. That's repair. It's the difference between the surgeon who plans the incision for our good and the emergency room doctor who sews us up after a freak accident. The text says, this text says, God is the doctor planning our surgery, not the doctor repairing our lacerations. That's the big picture that I want us to have a firm grasp on before we get into the details. Whatever about your life that's hard this morning, right now, has been planned for you if you're a child of God because God wants your heart. He wants you fully devoted to him and knows that that's the key to your happiness and joy. And this pain, whatever it is, is given to you to that end on purpose, because your wise surgeon knows what you need. Now let's get to the details. Hopefully that's clear. We'll talk after if, you, if, if it's not. I'd love to, to flesh this out some more with you one-on-one. Now I want to get to the details. These verses are so encouraging to us, I believe. I think there's three things we can isolate here, especially in verses 5 to 11. Three things that we can look at that show us how to see pain as God's discipline of us and to embrace that pain. Why we should not run from it, but embrace it and endure it with joy. Discipline shows us that God's loves, God loves us. That's number one. Discipline aims at our holiness. That's number two. That's the purpose of it. And discipline always bears fruit. Discipline always bears fruit. That's the result of it. I want to look at each of those things together now before we close. Discipline shows us that God loves us. That's where the passage starts, I think, in verse 5. He quotes this beautiful proverb and says, Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The Lord disciplines the one that he loves. Then he launches into this great analogy between human parenting and God's care and parent-like affection for us. that, That what human parent doesn't discipline their child for their good? 
That actually, if you haven't been disciplined, he says in verse, verses 7 and 8, if you haven't been disciplined, then you're an illegitimate child. You're a child that's not cared about, that doesn't truly belong to the parent. And I think we would all resonate with this, right? There are a whole host of philosophies of discipline out there. There are probably a whole bunch of them represented just in this room alone. And we don't, we don't have to get into those to claim this one point, that whether you're a timeout person or a spanking person or whatever, if you love your child, you're not just going to let them have what they want all the time, right? That's going to be, that would destroy them. So what you've got to do is shape them. You've got to shape them through discipline. If you don't do that, it shows you don't love them the way you need to. There's a great difference, for example, between the way that I interact with other kids compared to Walter when I take him to the, pro- to the park, right? Other kids aren't my problem. That's exactly the way I think about it. They're not my problem. <laughs> so, obviously, if, if a toddler decides to try out the fireman's pole and I'm in a position to intervene, I'm going to do it, right? I'll go catch him or, or stop him. But if, if a toddler is exhibiting antisocial behavior in the sandbox and it's not Walter then, you know, honestly, not only am I not going to do it, but I'm probably going to feel, I'm not going to do anything about it, I'm probably going to feel a sense of relief that at least it's not my kid, right? That's their problem. Because they're not my child and I don't love them, you know, if I don't know them. I mean, I have a certain kind of, you know, love, I hope, from human to human or whatever, but I don't know them, I'm not invested in them, I don't have a sense of ownership over them. Related to me, they're an illegitimate child of mine, right? They're not my legitimate child. And if God is not disciplining us, then it says that he doesn't love us in the way that his word claims that he does. He's got to, because he loves us and because we aren't who we need to be, discipline is the only logical result. If we were perfect and he loved us, great, no need for discipline. If he didn't love us and we aren't perfect, great, he'd leave us alone. But if he loves us and if we aren't where we need to be, then discipline is the only logical step. Otherwise, his love is a sham. I think a lot of times we're tempted to when we suffer, any kind of pain, big, little, whatever, wherever you estimate it. Anytime we suffer in any way, we tend to think of that as God abandoning us. Where's God? Why don't you take this away? Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Take it away. I think what this passage is saying is that when we go through pain, whatever the reason, whatever the source, it's not God's abandonment of us, but it is God coming to us. It is God showing his investment in us. It's God showing that he loves us too much to let us keep on trusting false gods that are going to crumble under the weight we put on them. It is God not willing to let us settle for anything less than the satisfaction and joy that comes from a full-hearted trust in him. God is not abandoning us in our pain. He is claiming us for himself in our pain because he loves us. That's number one. This passage shows another thing about why we should embrace the pain in our lives, whatever it is, as a sign of God's discipline us and run to it, not away from it. Accept it and endure it, not, not run away from it. It's because discipline aims at our holiness. I've already kind of pointed towards this, so I won't have to spend too much time here. Verse 10 gives us the point of discipline, the aim of it, the purpose of it. They disciplined us, talking about human parents, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So what's hard about your life right now? Fill in that blank for me because I can't predict it. Whatever that is, God means it to make you more holy. Believe that right now. It's true. Whatever it is, whatever you're filling your mind with right now about your life, trust this. God means it to make you more holy. Now holiness in the Bible runs all through the Bible. Uh, as, as, a, as a goal for God, of God for his people. 
It's, it's associated with things like cleanness or you know, an absence of defilement, a sort of purged and pure product. But really, if you want to look at the underlying thing for holiness through the Bible, it is a perfect, pure devotion to God. The opposite of holiness in the Bible is idolatry. It's a worship of a thing that shouldn't be worshipped, whether ourselves, because we trust and love and obey ourselves rather than God, or, or some other thing that you might replace him with. So holiness, as God's goal, is about winning us over from trusting, loving, and obeying some false sham of a God that's going to crumble, whether that be us through our self-reliance or through something else that we trust, and winning us over to a more full and complete and perfect trust, love, and obedience towards God. That's what holiness would look like for us. And discipline aims at weaning us off of our self-reliance, our trust of self and others that will let us down, and replacing whatever that is for you with a deeper, fuller trust in God and his gospel. Does that make sense? Holiness is about a deeper, fuller trust in the gospel. And discipline is about purging us or weaning us off of what else we trust and giving us a fuller, deeper trust in God. I love this one example of of discipline towards holiness in action. In Paul, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the second one, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Paul says this, We were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength, we don't know what from, that we despaired of life itself. I mean, he, was in the, he was in the pits, right? He was in the deep darkness of soul. Indeed, he says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. If that isn't a textbook description of depression, I haven't read one. And here's what Paul says. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The reason he was taken to this place of despair is so that he would stop relying on himself and start relying on the one who raises even the dead. The point of discipline was to purge him from self-reliance and to replace that with a deeper trust in God. The purpose of discipline, what holiness looks like, is Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. When God is through with us, this will be true in an unqualified way. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. Everything about me in this life may wither away to nothing. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's holiness. And your pain, whatever it is, is meant to leave you there. So believe it. Here's the last thing. The last thing our text points us to that shows us why Discipline is a good thing that we should embrace and endure rather than run from. Discipline, the Lord's discipline, always produces fruit. Whatever pain is in your life has been planned that way by God for your good, and God doesn't make mistakes. When he, as a surgeon, decides a course of action, he never misses with his knife. He always does what he intends. I love the contrast of verses 10 and 11. Uh, in, in, in verse 10, he talks about for our parents, our human parents disciplined us for a while. And he says, as it seemed best to them, it's written like a parent, isn't it? Like the, I don't know who this author was. Nobody does, but he knew what it is to be a parent. You kind of do what seems best to you. you. You hope, you close your eyes and cross your fingers and you, and you try to be consistent. But you don't know that what you're, gonna, what you're doing is going to work. You feel so powerless over your children. And a lot of times you wish that you hadn't disciplined them the way you had. 
You do your best. That's the way our human parents discipline us, but God is not that way. He disciplines us for our good. He disciplines us as one who sees the end from the beginning, as a skilled surgeon with a carefully orchestrated plan. God is always consistent. He always knows best. He never fails to accomplish what he wants. So if you're stuck in the weeds right now and you can't see the end of whatever it is that you're enduring, then you need to hear this. You can't see the end, but your Father can. Your Father gave you what it is you're experiencing as a gift to you. And if you endure to the end, through the pain, He will accomplish His good ends for you. For the moment, verse 11 says, what we've all experienced, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But when God is the one disciplining us, it always bears fruit. Here's what God's fruit or discipline produces in us. Here's the fruit. I love the ESV's translation. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what he's going to give us. Righteousness is is a fancy kind of churchy word for a right standing. Like that, that, you're, that you relate to someone else in the way that you should. Um, righteousness is, is almost a legal term, uh, often used in the, in the New Testament as a kind of legal term where you know, your, your debts have been paid. You stand, you're in good standing with society as a citizen or what have you. What you owe to God is given to God. You're righteous. I think that means it's, it's basically a synonym here for holiness, for what God's trying to produce in us. It's not just what God gives us in Jesus. That's one thing. That's, that's one of the right way of we talk about righteousness, something that's given to us as a gift that's always outside of us, that belongs to him and is attributed to us. But the New Testament also talks about God working righteousness in us, that he, he, he makes us who we are. We're already who Jesus is. That's something he gives to us as a gift, but he's not willing to let us live in a way that isn't consistent with that forever. So he's changing us, to helping us to take on in ourselves the righteousness Jesus has given us, this, this right standing with God. And what right standing with God looks like is to treat God like he should be treated, to think of him in the way he should be thought of, to love and trust and obey him in the way that he should be loved and trusted and obeyed. Righteousness, a right relationship with God, looks like holiness in the way that we've talked about it. But this is called here a peaceful fruit, and that's the, that's the description that I really want to uh, zone in on. Peaceful fruit. To be righteous, to have that fruit in your life, is to be at peace It's to be trusting God and looking to him rather than to your circumstances. It's been freed from what one author has called the tyranny of circumstances. Haven't we tasted of that? The tyranny of circumstances. Like whatever that day holds for you is going to shape and determine your outlook, your experiences, your faith even. That you are at at the beck and call of whatever happens to you. The peaceful fruit of righteousness that God's discipline gives to us and bears in us removes us from that tyranny of circumstances and gives us a kind of groundedness and peace that isn't shakable by circumstances when they shift. It's the kind of faith that isn't based on pleasantness and ease, but the kind of faith that can weather even the pain that Hebrews has talked about so much. It's through pain that God reveals self-reliance and replaces it with holiness, and this is what makes us secure. It's what gives us peace. The question is, and I close with this, will we submit to it? Will we be willing to submit to the Lord's discipline? Verse 9 says, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Like it or not, we submitted to their discipline. 
Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? It's an open question. Will we be subject to this one who gives us pain for our good? What it will recall or require in us, actually, is, is a new set of responses to the things that are hard in our lives. For example, all of us have pain in our life, or hardship or whatever you want to call it, that's caused by other people. They do things to us. They say things to us. They inconvenience us and hurt us. And the normal response to pain that's caused by others is to resent it, to grow bitter if you're the kind of person who stuffs it in, to lash out if you're the kind of person who just goes with your anger. The natural response to pain caused by other people is to focus on their flaw, to let what they've done to you define how you're going to relate to them. But if we respond to that kind of pain through faith, if we look to ourselves and into ourselves and ask what God might be teaching us through this pain, even if the pain is legitimately caused by somebody else, even if it is their fault, even if they should be required to sort of pay for it, if we can get to the place through faith where that's not what we're fixated, where instead we're fixated on what God is doing in us through the pain we're experiencing, well, then we're responding to pain in the way God intends for us to. We, we respond to what's done to us through others by asking ourselves serious questions. Like, do I feel this way about what they've said to me because I value their approval too highly and I've made that an idol in my life? We ask ourselves, is it too important to me to be recognized for them by them? Do I... Is it too important to me to be treated in the way that I think I deserve to be treated? Similarly, another example. All of us have pain in our life, hardship, whatever, on whatever scale, that's caused by circumstances that are outside of our control. And one of the most normal ways of responding to things that don't go our way is through complaining about it, right? Who of us isn't guilty of that every single day of our life? Things happen to us outside of our control. We don't like it. And our instinct is to complain. And have you ever thought that behind your complaining, what you're essentially saying is that if you were God, you would have done things differently? If you, if you respond to what happens to you in your life, these circumstances that cause you pain, in the way that faith dictates, then what you trust is that God is a wise and loving surgeon. He loves you better than anyone else ever could. He knows what you need more than anyone else ever could. And he is committed to giving that to you through whatever means necessary, including your pain. So you respond not by complaining and wishing that he would take it away, but by asking through faith that he just give you the strength to endure it, that he would do in you what needs to be done, that you would look at what he might be trying to teach you. You would ask what is wrong with you, not what's wrong with God or others, rather than constantly looking to shift blame. That's the way you can confront pain if you believe the testimony of his word, if you respond in faith. And honestly, that is a kind of growth process that you just can't do alone. What it's calling on, I think, is for us to look at our lives honestly, to take half an hour, even this afternoon, to just be quiet and think. What is it in my life right now that's holding me back from this race, the sort of sin that verse 1 and 2 talk about needing to be shed, this weight that needs to be shed so that we can run and how might the things that I'm complaining about in my life be helping me get rid of that thing? Just spend half an hour thinking about that. 
And then ask other people to help you. Because you're blinded. We're all blinded. One of the reasons God has saved us into a community of people who love each other is that our, our love for each other sometimes is an agent God uses to inflict this kind of disciplinary pain, you know, in a good way, right? To, to say, you know, brother, I love you. And that's why I think that this pattern that you have or talking about the way that this person has treated you, it just shows that you care way too much about how they think of you. It shows that you haven't really understood or connected with how much you have done to your Father in heaven, how much you deserve His wrath. And yet you're, you're insisting that this person pay for this little thing that they said to you. I mean, that's the kind of thing that no one ever wants to hear. It's painful to hear that, right? But that is the thing we just depend on each other for because without it, we're going to be blind. And it's that kind of discipline, that kind of discipline that gives shape to a life that will endure that will run the race to the end. Let's run it together. God, help us. Oh, Father, help us not to resent your discipline. What we want is to be holy because we trust that that comes not just with the approving smile of the one who made us, but comes with the peace that passes all understanding because it comes to us as a a deeper and fuller reliance on the one who can meet every need. We want that holiness. We crave it. So do to us what you have to. Only help us to endure, we pray. Do to us what you have to. But help us to endure. For Jesus' sake, amen.